The sermon text this morning is Romans 8, verses 17 through 25. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered if being a Christian is worth it all? Have you ever struggled with wondering about being a Christian? In other words, what I mean by that is when you're encountering various troubles and trials, uh, when you're seeking God, you're asking for prayer, you're asking for deliverance and it doesn't come, do you ever wonder, is it really worth being a Christian? Oftentimes, you you become a Christian and and life isn't what you expect. You're not getting what you want. And many people have often stepped back and said, is this really what I bargained for? Is this really what I want? And they they back away. You know, is it worth? Is it worth it all? I, I think Paul would answer, yes, it is. You know, we've been going through this book of Romans. We're in chapter 8 right now. And we've already learned about the Spirit of God giving freedom from the law and sin. And yet, more than that, God's Spirit actually dwells within us. Dwells within us, and it confirms to us that we're His children. And yet, we suffer. You know, we have this status as sons and daughters of God, and yet we endure such hardship and troubles and trials in our marriages, in our parentings, and in our, in our lives. And many of us are led to the question, is it really worth it, God? Are you really on our side? And Paul kind of gives the answer right there in verse 18. It's kind of a key verse where he says that he does not consider the sufferings of this present time to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed. Now, that word compared is kind of a, it's a commercial term. It it, it speaks to kind of calculating. In other words, Paul's kind of saying, do the math yourself. Do the math yourself. Add up all your troubles. Add up all your struggles out of all the hardships of life, and put it on one side of the scale, and then take the very glory of God that will be revealed to you, the inheritance that the Christian has waiting for, and dump that on the other side of the scale. And and what do you think will be revealed? Paul's saying the sufferings of the present time are not worth. They're not to be compared. In fact, they're to be contrasted with the glory that is to be revealed to the sons and the daughters of God. You know, when you look at this text, I just have two big ideas for you. Uh, One is to look at the present sufferings, the reality of present sufferings. I'm going to try to prove that they're, in fact, somewhat valuable to us, but they're not final. 
Uh, so there's the present sufferings. And then the, the other point that Paul makes, because it's kind of an intertwined passage. Some you can kind of work through verse by verse, like you can take steps up, up to the second floor. This is kind of intertwined. And so the second point would simply be this, that the future glory is incomparable. First, that the, that the present sufferings, Paul speaking to the reality of the present sufferings, there's going to be value in them, but the future glory is incomparable. So those are the two big ideas. So, but I want you to see the intellectual honesty of Paul because he doesn't try to sell Christianity or, or kind, of, kind of sell it as a, as a false bill of goods, as if everything's going to be great for you. He recognizes the reality of suffering within the Christian life. I think you see that in verse 19 when he speaks about the creation being subjected to futility. What we see here is not only do we suffer under this world, but the world actually suffers. I think when he speaks about that being subjected to the futility, I, I think he's speaking about Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, where, where God has brought judgment upon this creation uh, because of the sin of Adam. Now, creation didn't sin, but Adam did, and, and the judgment has fallen upon all creation. In other words, this is what theologians call the fall. Because creation has fallen from what it was intended to be. Creation is subjected to futility. In other words, there's a certain frustration to creation. Creation was meant to flourish and thrive. Creation was meant to display God's glory perfectly. But it doesn't. It's subjected to futility. That word actually comes from Ecclesiastes. We see it there a lot. All of life is vanity. All of life is meaningless. You know, there's a certain futility to creation. You kind of see it in the seasons, right? Spring gives way to the heat of summer and then the fading of fall and then the death of winter. Over and over and over it goes. It's kind of like a merry-go-round. You know, merry-go-rounds are cute for kids, uh, but as an adult, you don't want a merry-go-round. You're going the whole time, but you're going nowhere. There's a frustration to it. And this is what he's saying. about Paul's personifying creation. He's like putting a mouthpiece into creation. And creation is groaning because it's just going round and round. It's not doing what God intended it to do. But it's not just, it's not just futility. You see in the text the word that it's subject to bondage to decay. You know, there's that cycle of creation. It's birth and it's, it's growth. And then it's death and then it's decay. Over and over these cycles. You see it in life. Cars rust. Things break down. Things wear down. There's a certain frustration to life that it just won't last. Over and over it goes. But then you even see him reference the creation being in the pains of childbirth. That there's pain associated with frustration. You know how this feels. When you're frustrated, there's a certain pain to it. That creation knows it's been created to bring great glory to God, and yet it's thwarted. You know, if you've read C.S. Lewis, any of his writings, the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a series, it's a great series, and the, uh, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, it, it, it speaks about these kids entering a land of Narnia. And, and the land of Narnia is marked by a unique feature that it's always winter. It's always winter there. They've never known springtime. That's the nature of the frustration that creation has. It's always winter. It's never, it's never allowed. It's never permitted to bloom and grow. And so Paul's saying here 
that why we have sufferings, this world itself is groaning for redemption. It is frustrated. But it's not just creation, it is we ourselves. Notice in 23, where it says, we groan inwardly as well. You know, there's a frustration in our lives. And I, th I think you would agree that, that we're subject to the same cycles. I mean, just, just look at our lives physically. So life quickly changes. We quickly mature. We grow old. Hair begins to gray. The skin begins to thin and wrinkle. We get sick. We fatigue. We tire. There is no one. You know, exercise, eating right, cosmetic help, it only postpones the inevitable. It only postpones the decay that is part of the futility of this world. I mean, Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says that we are in this earthly tent. We're groaning. We're burdened. He says in chapter 4 that we're wasting away our outward body. I mean, there is no one here that at 65 looks like when they were 25. There's no one. It's this cycle that leads to frustration, leads to suffering and sickness. But it's not just sore knees. It's a sore soul. Part of the futility of this creation is, is even for the Christian that, that we, we still struggle with sin. Over and over we seem to commit the same sins. We hurt those that we love. We say stupid things. We say things that we wish we wouldn't have said. There's a certain frustration in this life. You know, we seem to spend much of our lives, you know, wanting things that we can't get. We can't afford it. And by the time you can afford it, you don't want it. It's like this cycle of frustration. This is what I think Paul is getting at in chapter 7 when he says, I do that which I don't want to do and I don't do that which I want to do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I think it's that, that frustration. It could be like golf, you know, golf. I referenced this a little bit ago, but I mean, you know what to do and you just can't do it. That's why I think it's the most frustrating sport in the world. You know in your mind, but you just don't do it. And it but it's a picture of what we have. One author wrote it this way about our life of groaning. He says, our lives consist of groans. We groan because of the ravages that sin makes in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. We groan because of the possibilities that are not being captured and employed. We groan because we see gifted people who are wasting their lives. We groan in disappointment and bereavement and sorrow. We groan physically in our pain and our limitation. Life consists of a great deal of groaning. And I think if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, you're investigating, I'm glad you're here. But I think, would you not agree that this is a self-evident truth? I mean, that, that you have desires, you have goals, you have dreams. And when you begin to find those fulfilled, they never meet up to the promise that they offer. There's always a sense of quiet desperation among us. You know, even when you hit the sweet spot, it doesn't seem as sweet as you would hope. There's a sense of dissatisfaction. There's a sense of discontentment with life, even when you get what you want. And if you don't agree with me, then I can just marshal my friend Mick Jagger, of course, the singer of the Rolling Stones. He would agree with me, saying that great song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Now, he'll admit to you that he tries and he tries and he tries and he tries. 
but you just can't get no satisfaction. It's this theme song for the world. It really is. We cannot get any satisfaction in this world. This world has been subjected to futility, and so we suffer. And even if you don't see that in your life, just take a step back and look at the landscape of humanity. You think about the accumulated wisdom and knowledge that we've gained in this world. We know more about the universe than we ever have. Think about the medical and the technological advances that we've made. And you know what? Do we love any better? Do we care for people any better? Are we kinder? Are we gentler? Is not nationalism and racism and sexism and narcissism and materialism not still strong and present in every generation? Or you take the issue of war. You'd think with a war or two, you might learn eh, a lot of destruction, a lot of death, a lot of pain, a lot of, lot of separation of families. Would we learn? We don't seem to. Now, Ferguson wrote a book called The War of the World, 20th Century Conflicts and the Descent of the West, and here's what he writes. He says, the hundred years after 1900 were without question the bloodiest century in modern history far more violent in relative as well as absolute terms than any previous era. In fact, he estimates between 166 and 188 million people died early deaths just because of wars in that century alone. Do you see the futility here? Now, what does the world have to offer? What does the wisdom of men and women have to offer? Well, generally what we do with this futility, this meaningless, this repeated cycles of self-destruction is we either deny it or we blame others for it or we just get angry at it. Or, or what I can't get but I see constantly in every generation is this progressive liberal thought that we just, just got to try harder. You know, we're going to enact the right laws. We're going we're to elect the right administration. We're just going to be better at education. And that's, you know what it's like? It's like leaning over and whispering to the hamster who's in the wheel, just run faster, just run faster, just run, as if that's going to change the cycle. It won't. This is the futility. This is why we suffer in this world. But Paul has wisdom for the Christian here. I just want to draw a few points before we move to, to the future hope of glory that's incomparable. Let me just draw a couple of lessons on this idea of the reality of the present suffering. I'm still into that first idea, that, that first bucket. And I would say this, that for the Christian, suffering is indivisible with glory. Suffering is indivisible. You can't have one without the other. Now listen, you won't hear this on the radio. You know, many of us think that when I become a Christian, when I become an heir of God, when I become a, a co-heir of Christ, that, that life is going to get smooth and, and the sufferings are going to go away and the hardships are going to be eliminated. That health and wealth will be the indication of God's favor and that if you're sick, it's simply a lack of faith and you need to pray more. Let me tell you, that's very dangerous. And I would say it's very unbiblical. And you see it right there in verse 17. That, that we're, called co -heirs of, uh, we're called heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ and we're going to share in his glory, but it's provided we share in his sufferings. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be misled. That the sufferings are bound up with glory. God has designed it that way. The cross precedes the crown. The sufferings precede the sorrow. 
But it's, it's, it's our means of identification with Christ. So sufferings are indivisible from glory. But I would also say that sufferings aren't compatible. They're not even comparable with glory. You know, the sufferings are short in their duration. Do you notice when he says the sufferings of this present age, that temporal modifier, he's saying they're only for a time, short in duration. This is not a small point. This is a significant issue. We have to remember that we live in a present age of which sufferings are, are a part, but there's an eternal age. Now, you may say, well, Tom, you don't know how I'm suffering right now. You don't know the pressure I'm under, and you may be right. Perhaps I don't know. But I would remind you that the writer of these words was the Apostle Paul. And let me just read you a short little testament of some of the things that he went through, maybe to establish a, a level of credibility. We read in 2 Corinthians, he says, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, and night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And those are just the physical sufferings. Then he goes on to talk about how he suffers for the churches, that spiritual burdenness that he had for people. So he's saying it's light and it's momentary. So suffering is indivisible with glory. Secondly, suffering is incompatible. It's not even to be comparable to glory. And then last, I would say this, suffering actually prepares us for glory. You saw in verse 19 where it says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but by him who subjected it. God is the one that brought the subjection upon all creation. So God has a design. He has a purpose to it. That, that, that this is not by accident. The sufferings that we go through are measured from and through the very hand of God. It's not happenstance. It's not bad luck. It's not a bad turn of events. It wasn't a black cat that ran in front of you. God measures these out. I would say the sufferings are, I would almost say, necessary for us to be prepared for him. Uh, sufferings are like, it's like that large hammer that just chisels off those things that draw us away from God. The attachment, the love that we have for the world. You know, uh, sufferings... They expose our sins. You've heard the expression that you don't really know what kind of tea it is, that is the tea in the tea bag, until it gets put into hot water. It, it exposes who we are. It, it allows us to see the nature of sin in our own life, that we can run and confess and get right with God. What sin does is, or what um, suffering does, is it, it draws us to a point of dependence that nothing else will bring us. You don't pray like you pray when you get a bad medical report. You pray differently. It affects the way you pray. It makes it visceral. It makes it so in your gut. God, I need you. The reality is, we've always needed them, but you really know it then. You know, John Newton, the author of the great hymn, Amazing Grace, he said that trials and sufferings are like, they're the weights of an old grandfather clock. If you've ever seen that old grandfather clock, you know, that, that has the weights, and the weights keep the pendulum moving so that the clock operates properly. The clock needs those weights because it keeps it going. 
And so we need the suffering. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, for this light momentary affliction, remember now what I just explained about his life, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering for us can be valuable. But friends, I'm so thankful to say it's not final. It's not final. Suffering does not have the last word. It will not have the last word. No, we have this future glory which is incomparable. And and you see this, again, through creation and creatures. You see this in creation. You you, you see that he says it's been subjected uh, by him in hope. There's hope in the suffering, that he's going to lead us out. In fact, in fact, creation is groaning, it says, groaning to be set free. In other words, creation is longing for this time. Again, he's personifying creation. You know, we have in the scripture about the, about the trees clapping their hands and the stars singing for joy. He's personifying it. That it's groaning to be released from its corruption and its bondage. It's groaning to be made into what it was meant to be. This is like paradise regained. No more cycles of spring being burned out by summer, fading in fall and dying in winter. It'll be a perpetual spring, that it will be all that it's meant to be. I mean, consider the glory of creation, fully blooming, all that God intends. And we see pictures of it. Isaiah particularly gives a lot of pictures. It's metaphorical, but it's very clear. He writes in chapter 11 in Isaiah, he says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. You don't see that in a corrupted creation. In a creation marked by futility, you see death, death, death. Not here. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the, in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a picture. You know, when Carol and I were overseas, we, would, um, we got to see some beautiful sights while living in Europe, uh, while doing work there. And, and one particularly mountain range went to, it was uh, the rocks, R-A-X. And it wasn't the Alps, but it was close to them. And we took this gondola up to the top of the mountain. It was a time where it still was covered with snow. And and I remember we both kind of walked out, we turned the corner, and we saw this landscape of mountaintops. And both of us were just speechless. We were just in awe of how beautiful they were, how majestic, how how powerful, how solid they were. We didn't say anything because we were just mesmerized by God. And that's a marred creation. That, that, that's a broken creation. Can you imagine God's handiwork when it's without sin? Can you imagine the beauty of what we will see? Creation is groaning to be what God intends it to be. But not just creation. We ought to groan for what we will be. In fact, you notice that creation's kind of, their judgment was wrapped up in our sin. 
Well, creation's freedom is wrapped up in our freedom. Creation is waiting. It's groaning for the revealing of the sons and the daughters of God. We too will be redeemed. That's the hope of glory. That's the glory that's coming to you, a full redemption. And notice what he says in 23, we groan inwardly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now you may say to me, well, last week we already heard that we were adopted. I mean, last week the Spirit witnesses to our spirit to confirm to us that we're children of God, and that's true. But our adoption is not yet full. Our adoption is not yet complete. Why? Because we still dwell in these bodies of sin. We're waiting for our bodies to be redeemed and restored with our souls. Then we will be revealed as the sons and daughters of God. Think about that revealing. What's it mean to be revealed as a son or daughter? Well, you know, right now the world looks at us. And they say, you're children of God? And this is the life you're living? You're getting sick, you're getting cancer, you're getting diseased? Your marriage is in trouble? What kind of God is that? And, and it's almost as if we're mocked. As if God's doing a poor job being God. But on that final day, when he redeems our bodies, and he brings us forth, the world will see these are the children of God. Because they will be like his son. Our bodies will be restored. Our minds will be perfected. Our personalities will be made lovely. All of that to display his glory to the world. That is the hope, the incomparable hope that we have, that we long for. So yes, we live in the present reality of these sufferings, but we live in these sufferings with an eye on that future hope. That's how we walk through the sufferings. And the reason we have confidence, this isn't some pie-in-the-sky Freudian projection of, I, 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 just, I just have to have something good to look forward to. No, no, he tells us. Look back in 23, he says this. In 23, he speaks about we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The evidence is rooted. The hope that we have, the confidence that we have, is rooted in the having the first fruits. Now, what is a first fruit? Well, you'd know it if you were a farmer, but it's an agricultural term for those early spring fruits of seeds planted in the fall. And, and these fruits that are being born are evidence that a full crop is coming. So if you see those first fruits, you know the harvest will be here and be in full. And so he says, we have these first fruits. What are these first fruits? Well, think about the joy you had when you came to believe the gospel. You were forgiven. You were reconciled. The guilt and the shame that marked your life was washed away. The joy you had. The celebration you had with other Christians who you could now identify with. The friendships and the depth of relationships you had with others because Christ was at the center of it. Or maybe the first time that you didn't respond in anger, but you gave a gentle word in return. Or perhaps you were tempted to lust, and you looked down. You did not follow through in that temptation, but you felt the Spirit of God leading you away from that. Or perhaps you sinned against somebody, and instead of waiting for them to come and tell you that they were hurt, you were convicted by the Spirit, and you go and repent to them. These are the first fruits. This is when you stop and you say, I am a child of God. Look at the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And that fruit is to remind you, this is what you have coming in fullness. See, the Spirit of God is not given to us simply as a down payment. It is, that's true in Ephesians 1. It's the Arabom, it's the, it's the engagement ring. Yes, I will marry you. That's what God's saying. 
But it's more than it's more than just a down payment. It's a foretaste. The joy that we have from forgiveness, we will have in fullness when we see him. This is the confidence. This is why I don't feel like I'm I'm kind of creating this unicorn rainbow world for you. We have the first fruits of the spirit in us now. Therefore, we will have the full harvest when we see him face to face. This is what enables us to get through present sufferings. And this is what enables us to hope. And that's what Paul gets to in 24 and 25. He talks about this hope by which we're saved. You know, remember now, a biblical hope is different than we hope. You know, we hope the you know, Panthers won the Super Bowl. You know, uh, this is not this kind of, un, you know, we're not confident. This is a hope secured in a past act. That's the difference with a biblical hope. A biblical hope is rooted in something that has already happened. That is the nature of the gospel. That gives us hope, a certainty and hope. But, but Paul says that we wait patiently or enduringly. How do we do that? I just want to give you a few points, maybe four points to consider how we wait. So we have the reality, the present sufferings. I've explained to you about the futility of this world, but we have this future hope of incomparable glory that is ours, both promised to creation and his children. So how do we, how do we wait for this? Well, the first thing I would say is that we're called, I think, to cherish the gospel. We're called to cherish the gospel. You know, you ask, how does this fit into the book of Romans? Well, remember, the book of Romans is a letter. Paul was writing a letter to the Christians in Rome. He wants to do further missionary work, hopefully in Spain. He is soliciting their support. He is revealing to them what he thinks about the nature of the gospel. And it's really a book about how does man and woman get right with God? That's the whole tenor of the book. And you see that right in chapter 1, verse 16, because he goes right to the heart of it. How does man get right? It's the power of God through the gospel for all who believe. Salvation to all through the gospel. And then, you know, the chapters we've been studying, he teases it out, you know. Why do we need to be saved? Well, chapters 1, 2, and 3 speak about the nature of sin. We've all fallen short. And then he goes into 5, 6, and 7 about how we live now in light of the justification that Christ has earned. So what are we doing here? Well, he's not talking about the nature of the gospel other than the consummation of the gospel. This gospel that saves is going to bring us all the way to God. Uh, See, the reason we cherish the gospel is because the futility of the world that we're suffering under is due to sin. And he came to take sin upon himself. But more than that, he came to take the very curse that brought the futility. The futility that leaves our life meaningless has now been borne by Christ. So our sins have been placed upon him. And the wrath of God has fallen upon him. So that now God can be both just and the justifier by forgiving and drawing us in as children of God. So that now he can assure us that yes, there's hope. So we want to cherish the gospel. We want to believe the gospel. We want to live in light of the gospel. And for those of you here who have who have not come to terms with the gospel. Being religious, going to church, trying to live a moral life, that is not what the Bible speaks about in terms of the need to be born again. To be born again is to believe that Christ has come as my substitute, that I might be reconciled to God, that the curse might be broken, that I might have meaning and value in my life, because he has borne that which kept me 
in a land of futility. And now he's brought me into a land of meaning and hope and value. So number one, we want to cherish the gospel. Number two, I would ask you to marvel over what this creation will be. I, I want you to think through with me. Uh, the beauty of this creation as we see it now, can you imagine what it will be? And the reason I ask you to do this is because evangelical Christians, if you're an evangelical Christian, we tend to, we tend to err in one of two ways with creation. We either look at creation as our kind of personal candy dish where we just get to take what we want from creation and, and we just exploit it, we take advantage of it, uh, we're casual about how we utilize creation, we end up polluting a lot, we end up doing a lot of it. Remember, we don't own the place. We are only called to steward it in Genesis 1 and 2. We're called to steward it to make it better. We are to care for creation. I'm not trying to go down a path of we're going to worship creation and creation is going to outlive us and all that. I'm not going down there. I'm just calling for a simple, you know, the evangelical Christian ought to have an eco they ought to have a theology of ecology. That we ought to value creation because God has made it and it is good and it's going to be great. And we don't want to go in another way of error, which is to look at creation as evil and slip into asceticism. And, and we, we can't enjoy what God has given to us. No, enjoy the food and the drink and the beauty that he has made. Enjoy it and let it lift your eyes to his glory. We just don't want to worship it. We don't want to try to find our ends in it. So, so, so let's be mindful of that, that, that we want to think rightly. We want to marvel over what creation is going to be. And, and then thirdly, I would say to meditate on what it means to be redeemed. Meditate on what it means that our bodies will be redeemed. So think about it. All of our sickness, all of our ailments, all of our, our bodily brokenness will be fixed. God will make us like the sun. Every physical pain, every limitation... As you get older and these things begin to deteriorate and you lose certain capacities, they'll be restored to you in full measure and more. Think about that. When you're frustrated over trying to open up an aspirin bottle, it will be changed. C.S. Lewis says it this way, he will make the feeblest and the filthiest of us into a god or goddess a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale. His own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we're in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. That's what we have. Can you imagine? But not just physically will he restore us. Meditate on the fact that your personality will be perfected. You know our personalities, all of us have those little ticks, those little idiosyncrasies that can bug us if we're alone for enough time. They surely bug other people. And, uh, and you think, how are we going to get along in heaven with so-and-so and how cornered he is and how sharp he is? God's going to, smooth out those edges. He's going to make us like the sun. You know, so Carol and I each morning get up and we try to have coffee together and we talk about our days and what is good, what's causing a degree of trepidation or fear, and then we pray together. And periodically I want to get feedback from her and so I'll 
periodically asks, honey, am I doing anything that's just bugging you? Am I doing anything that just annoys you? You know, because it's hard to see your own sin. It's hard to see where I am failing in my marriage. And obviously I love her, and I want to lead and love her well. And so I asked her, I said, what am I doing that's just annoying or really irritating or drawing you away from God? She kind of hesitates and puts her head down and she kind of says, do you think we have enough time right now? <laughs> and I said, well, I can take a few extra hours if you need them. But, but it, it, it's true, the, the personalities are going to be perfected. You know, sometimes when you watch the incremental growth of people, you really think, yeah, that really is incremental. You know, it would like to, to be a little bit more on the going up that y-axis or x-axis, whatever it is. But, but, but God's going to change all that. He's going to make us like the sun. Can you imagine the joyful fellowship that we'll have? We won't be hurting each other so easily. That's something to meditate on, to consider. And, and you know, uh, we need the church for this. You can't do this alone. You will not finish well alone, isolated, failing to be transparent, failing to engage with others. You won't do it. Jonathan Edwards gives this word in terms of how to finish the journey well. He he says this, he says, let Christians help one another in going on this journey. There are many ways that Christians might greatly help and forward one another on their way to heaven. This is the way to become more successful in traveling and to have a more joyful meeting at their Father's house in glory. We need each other to encourage each other, to love each other. This is the value of being in community. We can meditate together on what we will be like. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us consider how we may spur on one another towards love and good deeds, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's set in the context of that end day. Let us encourage one another and all the more. The last thing I would say is to, is to evaluate the intensity of your longing. So I've said cherish the gospel. I've said marvel over what creation will ultimately be when it's released, it's set free. Meditate on the redemption of your bodies and what you will be like in God's kingdom and fullness when you're like Christ. And then evaluate the intensity of your eagerness. How eager are you? How often do you long for that day? I mean, we think about vacation. We think about a sporting event coming up. We think about, we think about something exciting that we have. How often, how eager do you think about that? And I would say this too for those of you who are older. Not me, of course, but those of you who are older, there is a temptation to slow down on this journey. There is a temptation to lose some of the edge of eagerness because we've been in the faith so long. We've, we've experienced life at so many levels, and we tend to slow down. There's a warning. You know, John Bunyan, when he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, he talked about the enchanted ground. The enchanted ground is the warning that at the end of the pilgrimage, we are tempted to go a little bit slower. Like these are some words given to it. He says this, the enchanted grid, there's a stretch of path deceptively placed near the end of our pilgrimage. 
beckoning the pilgrim to stop, to relax, to spiritually retire, and thus to fall into the snare of spiritual slumber, spiritual inactivity, and spiritual susceptibility. This enchanted ground is pleasurably inviting, but spiritually deadening. How eager are you for that day? And Paul's telling us that the sufferings that we experience in this present life are to increase the eagerness, to increase the longing to see the one who has died for us, that we want to long for that day, that the glory of that day would trump any glory that is put before us in this life. How eager are you? Is this a point of repentance for you? Perhaps that you are going to ask forgiveness from God because you have given little thought to that day? Or perhaps it's, maybe it's a commitment to God that you want to make. I'm going to think. I'm going to dwell on that day. I just have one more parable for you. And it does come from the pen of John Newton again. He, he wrote to a friend who was struggling in life. And he went to encourage him that sufferings cannot preclude joy as long as you keep your eye focused on eternity. And here's the parable he gave. He said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. In other words, can you imagine we would think him to be a fool for complaining, for have to walk that mile? Perhaps it was a difficult mile, but it was only a mile, and he has an estate guaranteed to him in the city to which he walks. So for us, when we think of the glory, the incomparable glory that is ours, it causes us to move through these present sufferings, whether they be relational, whether they be physical, whether they be mental, whether they be personal, financial, all of these issues. Evaluate the eagerness that you have for that. We're all walking that mile. So we see the reality Paul has given us clearly that we do suffer in this life. We do. There are present sufferings. But they are not to be compared with the glory. Is it worth it to be a Christian? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We who have the first fruits know that. I, I would just say to those of you here today that maybe don't have that assurance, but you do have the eagerness. You would love this. Uh, this idea of, of all things becoming good. You know, Daniel brought this up in staff meeting when we were looking at the sermon text for this week. He said it's like a Disney movie. Now, the reason Disney movies are so popular is because it's one of those happily ever after. But let me tell you, there's, there's something that Walt Disney tapped into. And, and it's this. There is the transcendent hope in every one of us that we want something more. We have desires for it. Uh, believer, unbeliever alike, we desire. We have this transcendent hope that there has got to be something better that we see in this feudal world. And there is. And you know the writer of this, he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And we were. We're not home yet, but we have a home. And I'm thankful for that. Let me pray.